Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, you, uh, you, you might uh, experience what I think for some good reasons uh, would be right to experience when you come to chapter 8, a kind of a sigh of relief. A number of reasons. We're making progress. We are making our way through this book. But uh, really the big reason that you would uh, experience a kind of a sigh of relief is because in these verses that we're looking at and going to be looking at in chapter 8, we're going to be looking at new life. We're going to be looking at life in the Spirit. We're going, to, we're going to try to tease out from what Paul wrote all those years ago um, the real significance of what it is that Jesus has done for us. And we're, we're just going to do that in broad brushstrokes uh, this morning, looking at kind of the big picture. And then next week, uh, we'll, we'll be drilling down into the, I hope, the practicalities of this thing and how this business of living in the Spirit, by the Spirit, really does work. Um, but the thing that we, we want to see this morning as we come to this passage is that something really, really, really significant has happened for you if you're a Christian. Something really significant has happened for you. Uh, and that is this, and, and this is language that you find throughout the New Testament. You, if you are a Christian this morning, you have been gathered up into the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Life in the Spirit. Let's read together, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yeah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we come to your word. Open our minds and our hearts. And with your word this morning, even as we deal with things that are so hard for us, give us great encouragement. Lord Jesus, come and walk among your people by your Spirit and speak to their hearts individually according to their need. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. 
Just very quickly retracing our steps where we where we were last week as we came to the end of chapter seven uh, is with Paul crying out in verse twenty four wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death and let 's just remember that the basic argument here is Paul writes from his own experience in chapter 7, reflecting upon his experience as a Jew who loved the law, delighted in the law, knew that the law was holy and righteous and good. The time came in his life. He came to the point in his life where the law, rather than being his friend, rather than being something he could do, actually became the thing that killed him. It crushed him. It drove him nearly insane. He's reflecting upon his own experience, and he's reflecting upon his own, his own experience as a Jewish person who does love the law, but now who is a Christian, right? One who has come to Jesus Christ, who has begun to taste the things about which he speaks in chapter 8, and he's writing to his Jewish brethren, his Jewish friends, in these churches, these house churches in Rome, who are still clinging to the law. They're still clinging to the law, trying to find their security in their law, in the law, their safety in their obedience, their assurance before God in their own righteousness. And Paul, again, speaking out of his own experience, is telling them to stop and be honest with themselves and reflect soberly about the law and ask yourself this, what in fact does the law do? And here is what the law does. It exposes the depth of my sin. It exposes the depth of my need. For Paul, that meant covetousness. For Paul, that meant all kinds of covetousness were in fact stirred up by the law. The law can't help you. Not in the sense that it can save you. Your own obedience cannot save you. Your own righteousness cannot save you. That's what Paul is saying, and he's pleading with them to be honest, using his own experience, himself as an illustration, finally crying out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I just finished a wonderful book by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's called Wait Till Next Year. It's a memoir of her childhood living in Brooklyn, growing up as a Dodgers fan, being brokenhearted every year because the Dodgers either never made it to the World Series or were defeated by those Yankees. And she captures both the highs and the lows of life in the early 50s. And in one particular passage, she reflects upon those years in the early 50s when communism was a threat. And the emergence of Joseph McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin. And there's a really poignant moment near the end of McCarthy's career when in one of his, of his hearings, he is questioning a man named Joseph Welch, a highly respected Boston attorney who was counsel to the United States Army. And Welch, whose integrity was never questioned, never questioned, came under attack 
from McCarthy. And at one point in the hearing, as Doris Kearns Goodwin records it, Welch turned to McCarthy and said this, Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. Have you no sense of decency, sir? If there is a God in heaven, this attack will do neither you nor your cause any good. And when Welch finished his eloquent and emotional response, the crowd hearing room burst into applause and reporters rushed to the council's table where McCarthy sat alone, his head in his hands. What did I do? He asked in bewilderment. What he had done was to reveal himself to the entire nation as a savage and self-aggrandizing bully. Do you hear Do you hear what happened to McCarthy when he was in the presence of someone, a sinner like the rest of us to be sure, but a man of integrity who knew that he was acting honestly and represented what was the best in our system? And McCarthy, confronted by that, asked the question, What did I do? And that is what the law does to us, my friends. I have to believe at some point along the way in Paul's personal pilgrimage, in his personal odyssey, he had to have looked back on his life. He had to have looked back at the stoning of Stephen and asked himself the question, God in heaven, what did I do? That is what the law does. It exposes the depth of our need. Folks, if we think for a minute, and we'll come to this in just a few minutes, if we think for a moment that sin is a thing to be trifled with, that sin is simply a peccadillo, a little mistake, an error in judgment, how many times have we heard these things from politicians? I made a mistake. Aren't you waiting for the first person to repent? If we think of sin as a mere peccadillo, an error, a mistake in judgment, we are missing the very real threat that sin is, and law exposes it. Not that we might be crushed. This is what we have to understand, and this is what we will see. Not that we might be crushed. The law reveals sin to drive us to someone who can do something about it. And who is that one? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And in these 14 verses, there are three respects, as you might guess, three respects in which Jesus himself becomes a real hope that people really need. And this is the broad outline. These are the broad brushstrokes. We have real hope, and we have a real hope to offer 
Because in Jesus Christ, I have been freed from the penalty of sin. We have real hope because in Jesus Christ, I have been freed from the power of sin. And we have real hope because in Jesus Christ, I will be free from the very presence of sin. Maybe you've heard this before. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Paul deals, addresses, speaks to each of those realities in this passage. In Jesus Christ, first, I am freed from the penalty of sin. Free from it. Look at the text. Look at verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. The Greek text is very interesting. It's, it's, it's fun to be able to explore the Greek text, to know just enough about it, to be able to point out some things to you from it. The Greek text is really interesting. Greek is a language that works a little bit differently from English. Word order works differently in Greek than it does in the English. And do you know what the first word is in the text of Romans 8.1? The first word is not there is. It is not therefore. It is not now. The first word in the original is no. No. No, there is, therefore, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No comes first. It's as though Paul, again, reflecting on his own experience, and you have to remember that you move right from verse 25 into verse 1 of chapter 8. There were no chapter and verse divisions in Paul's letter. It's as though Paul, reflecting on his own experience, the anguish, the torture that he felt, the intense sense of internal conflict that he felt as he confronted the reality of the law, then came to understand Jesus Christ and that in Jesus Christ there is deliverance from, freedom from, the threat of condemnation, the threat of judgment, the first word that comes to his mind is no, none, not one bit, not one bit of condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a chance. Isn't that beautiful? How often do I need to hear that? How often do you need to hear that? How often do you need to hear it from me? How often do I need to hear it from you? How often do you need to hear it from yourself? There is no threat of condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. Even in the midst of this continuing conflict, right? I'm absolutely persuaded that Paul in chapter 7 is writing about his experience as a Jew coming to terms with the law, then coming to Jesus Christ and beginning to taste the freedom from the threat of judgment that there is in Jesus. But as we'll see next week and in the weeks to come, that struggle continues. And in the midst of the struggle... The thing I need to know above every other thing is that there is no threat of condemnation. 
I will tell you this. This is a principle. It's embedded in the scriptures and it pops out of the scriptures in powerful ways occasionally. This place being one of them. You will make virtually no progress in the Christian life, in your growth as a Christian, as long as you're afraid. As long as you are afraid, you'll make no progress. And Paul is saying here, if you're going to move in the direction of conformity with the image of Christ, if, if your life is going to be life in the Spirit, the first thing you need to know is that there is no longer a threat to you. And why is that? Why is there no longer a threat? Because of verse 3. Look, it's just so refreshingly and wonderfully powerful and encouraging. God has done. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? What flesh? The flesh of Jesus. The true humanity of Jesus. There is so much rich theology in this passage. This is an allusion, a reference to the fact that the eternal Son of God came into this world really and truly and took to himself a nature like yours. That's what Paul is referring to when he uses the phrase, the likeness of sinful flesh. That's why Hebrews can say that he was tempted in every way that you are. This was not a piece of theater. This was not God incarnate play acting. People will say, well, if he was God in the flesh, then it wasn't any sweat for him. It wasn't a problem for him. Think of it this way. Perhaps you've heard this illustration used. Think of Jesus in the way that you would think of a, of a pitchfork. You know, a pitchfork that is perfectly tuned. And when that pitchfork is struck, everything else is dissonant with that pitchfork. Everything else is out of tune. Right? When Jesus came into the world, he came into the world as perfect pitch. And everything else was dissonant. And everything else for him grated against him. And everything became for him a moment-to-moment, face-to-face battle against dissonance. True humanity. And what did God do? With Jesus in the flesh. This takes us back to Romans 3 and verse 24, where Paul describes Jesus as a substitute who is the propitiatory sacrifice for all of the sins of his people. And if you remember back a year or so ago to Romans chapter 3, the picture is simply this. It is a picture of a transfer. And Paul is resurrecting, raising again that picture of a transfer. How is it that I can be free of condemnation? It is simply in this way that God has transferred the totality of my sin 
from me. He has taken it all away from me and he has placed it upon Jesus and he has condemned Jesus bearing my sin in his real body on a real cross at a real place in real time. You see what's happened? It's gone. It's gone. Do you believe that? I don't. I don't. And you know what I mean by that. I believe it with my head. I used an illustration on Friday morning at the Women's Refuge. I had a little discussion about this. I asked them the question, what is the first thing that you do? I'm going I'm to answer the question because we can't have a discussion about this here. But you can have a discussion with yourself and tell me whether or not I'm right in filling in the blank for you. What is the first thing that you do when you sin and you know it? And perhaps even more significantly, what is the first thing that you do when you sin and you know it and your sin was premeditated? And we've all done that. Yeah, we've all made mistakes, errors in judgment, peccadillos, but we all know what it is in those instants, in those moments where it is possible for me to choose differently, I choose to do the thing that I know I should not do. What is the first thing that you do when you sin, you know you sin, and even when your sin is premeditated? Here's what I do. I run from God. I run to the bushes like Adam and Eve. I hide. I try to cover myself with something. I also do what Adam and Eve did. I blame. I push blame away from myself, don't I? Don't I? I try to cover it up. I try to hide it. I try to, I try to mask it over. Do you see what this verse is? It's the same thing that 1 John 2, verse 1 is. John writes to those hearers and he says, I'm writing all of these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you see what John is doing? He's doing an incredibly pastoral thing. He's saying, when you sin, don't run from God, run to God. Because there you have an advocate. Paul's saying the same thing. When you sin, don't run from God. Run to God. Why can you do that? You can do that. Because God took your sin away from you. He laid it upon Jesus and he condemned it. He judged it. He visited his wrath upon it. Do you understand? It does not exist as an issue between you and God any more. Forever. Don't you love? Don't you love? Can't think of her name. Just comes to my head. The hiding place. Thank you very much, Corey Ten Boom. Don't you love what Corey Ten Boom said? How many years ago, when God says, I forgive your sins? As far as the east is from the west, he deposits them in the deepest part of the sea and he puts a sign over those sins that says no fishing. Never, ever again. 
Believe that, my friends. There is no threat of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. And here's the second thing. I've got a ton of passages that I'd love to shove your way just so that you could believe me when I say that really is what the gospel is for you. No condemnation. Here's the second thing. Not only have I been freed from sin's penalty, I have been freed from sin's power. I've been freed from its power. That's what all of these images are about that Paul has been using throughout chapters 5 and 6. Paul is reminding us in these verses that the Christian is no longer in the flesh. We're going to see this as we work through the details. Paul is not describing two aspects of a person's humanity in this passage. He's not describing the fleshly part of you as over against the spiritual part of you. He is describing two ways of life. There is the way of the flesh, and there is the way of the spirit. And the person who is in Jesus Christ is also, verse 9, in the spirit. And the whole focus, in many respects, of what Jesus has done for you has to do with deliverance from power, the power of sin. That's where Paul was at the end of chapter 7. Remember, he was helpless. He was powerless. The law exposed his sin, the depth of his sin, and the extent of his helplessness. Helpless. Powerless. It's all throughout this letter. Paul, you'll remember, I have to do this quickly, but you'll remember in chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, he establishes this contrast between the first Adam through whom sin and death entered the world, contrasted with Jesus, through whose righteousness, through whose righteousness, life and freedom come. Not sin and death, but life and freedom. And in chapter 6, verse 3, Paul's reminding these Roman Christians, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then in verse 6, he reminds them that the old man has died. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Who is the old self? Who is the old man? It's the connection to Adam. That's the contrast here. The first Adam, the second Adam. Through the first Adam, sin leads to death and bondage. Through the second Adam and his righteousness come liberty and freedom. And the old man is dead. That's the contrast that he's drawing. You see this in passages, not only in Romans, but you see them. You see Paul talking about this very thing in other places. I'll, I'll mention to you Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where Paul there uses the language of resurrection. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with him in Jesus Christ. Death, resurrection. The old is over. The new has come. I love this one. I love Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Listen to what Paul prays for. 
Read his prayers. Read Ephesians. Read Colossians. Look at the things that he prays for. You know what he prays for? He prays that we'll get this. He prays that we'll understand this. Because in beginning to understand this, we begin to march down the path to real freedom. Listen to what he says. From the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to work in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to Share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You hear that? Transferred you. Delivered you from a bondage freed you and made you citizens of a different realm, living under the authority of a different kind of king. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 8 as he begins to talk about this matter of life in the Spirit. And here's another thing about this. Last Sunday evening, we had a great conversation here about the Christian life, which we're going to continue this evening. And I'm sorry I forgot to put this in the bulletin, but we are going to meet at 6 o'clock, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. Okay, so come tonight. But somebody who was there last night mentioned Galatians 5:17. In the midst of this, as we think about what it is to be in the Spirit and in Christ Jesus, as we think about what it is to be delivered from bondage and sin, to be set free from the threat and specter of death. One of those who was there last Sunday evening mentioned Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. What a great, great and encouraging verse. Where Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And the point this person made was, if you are a Christian, disconnected from the old Adam, in Christ Jesus, in the Spirit, the Spirit of Almighty God is warring in your behalf against the desires of the flesh. The Spirit of God is opposed to the things of the flesh, and He is warring in your behalf, fighting for you. What a beautiful thing! Because I'll tell you, in this fight, in this fight, I got no power. In this fight, I am so helpless and so weak and so frail. I'm like, I'm like Elisha's servant. You remember Elisha's servant? They're in a town someplace out in the middle of the promised land, which doesn't look a whole lot like the promised land, doesn't feel like the promised land. They're surrounded by the Assyrian army. They're standing on the wall. Elisha's there, perfectly composed, totally at rest. No problems. His servant is in a panic, positively, 
positively convinced that the Assyrian army is going to decimate the village, the town, the walls upon which he stands. And you remember what happens? 2 Kings 6, 1 Kings 6, one of the two. You go find it. You remember what happens? Elisha prays, dear God, open his eyes so that he can see. And when his eyes are open, what does he see? He sees the hills around the town filled with chariots of flaming fire, with a whole angelic host, invisible to the Assyrian army, but real and present to Elisha and his servant. Folks, that's the reality in which you live. You don't feel it. You can't smell it. You can't hear it. You can't really see it. The Spirit of Almighty God is brandishing a saber in your behalf, having delivered you and set you free, doing war against everything that will do you harm. It's a lot easier to go into the battle when you know that's the case. Jesus has freed you. He has freed you from the threat of condemnation. And he has freed you from sin's bondage. And he has given you his very own spirit who indwells you, who is the environment in which you live. And by that spirit, you will prevail. You will. How do I know that? Because Paul says so. Because Paul says so. And this is the third thing. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this third thing. He is as declarative and definitive and as absolute about this third thing as he is the first thing. There is no condemnation. You have been set free from the law of sin and death. You are in Christ Jesus. You are in the Spirit. And look at verses 10 and 11. Verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is what he is going to do. That is what he is going to do. If the spirit of God dwells in you, he will finish this fight. He will bring it to completion and he'll not only finish it in the spiritual realm, he will take your bodies, the spirit who dwells in you, and he will do with your body exactly what he did with Jesus' body. He will restore it fully and perfectly. And notice that the text, this is really interesting. Notice that the text in verse 10 says that our bodies are dead. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness, we think we're still living, don't we? We think we're still alive. The body is dead, my friends. Think about it. From the moment of conception, every physical human being struggles against death. And into that, Jesus speaks and says, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, death will not win. Death will not win. That's the big arc. That's the big picture stuff. Those are the broad brushstrokes. 
free from the threat of condemnation, delivered from sin's power with the sure and certain hope of your final and perfect restoration. That is life in the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Let's look forward to next week as we look more deeply into these things. But let's look now in the direction of the Lord's table as we come to celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have a real hope. We have a real hope and we have a real hope to offer. Please, Lord, take these things so poorly and imperfectly communicated. Please somehow take these things and press them into our hearts and set your people more and more at liberty. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.